0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at stratacons.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at theaicons.com. In this episode of the Data Show, I sat down with Sherrod Goel, assistant professor at Stanford University, and his student, Sam Corbett Davis. They recently wrote an excellent survey paper entitled, A Critical Review of Fair Machine Learning, where they carefully examined the standard statistical tools to check for fairness in machine learning models. It turns out that each of these standard mathematical formulations has limitations, and their paper is really a must-read tour through recent research in designing FAIR algorithms. We talked about their key findings, and most importantly, I pressed them to list a few best practices that we in industry might want to consider. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Sharad Goel and Sam Corbett-Davis, welcome to the Data Show. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Uh, So first off, congratulations to Sam. As I look at your website, it looks like you defended your thesis under Sharad recently.
1: Yep. Just finishing up now.
0: And it's actually on the very topics that we're going to talk about today, which is around ethics and fairness in algorithms. Yeah. So I guess my first question to both of you is, uh, how did you get interested in these topics to begin with? Because uh, for me, I think my first... uh, the first time I started really noticing the activity in this topic was around the FATML workshop, I think, at NIPS many years ago. Uh, and then since then, it's just exploded, this field.
2: Yeah, it has. I think, I'm trying to remember, when When did you start? Did you do this with the ProPublica?
1: Yeah, so we'd already Is, been working mm-hmm. on tests for bias in human contexts, uh, which a lot of my, my defense was about. And, and so we've been thinking about these sorts of questions for a while, and then the ProPublica piece came out um, two years ago, I guess, summer, summer 2016, and that got us thinking about, and I guess like a lot of people thinking about this topic, and that's when I think it already exploded.
0: And uh, so you're you're coming at it from uh, more of a public policy uh, perspective, but then uh, Sharad, there's a whole group of people now in computer science who are coming at it from Machine learning, they want machine learning to be fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean,
2: I think of these as two sides of the same coin, that there are algorithms, there is this computational aspect to it, and we, in that sense, we're coming at it from a CS perspective, but we're trying to be cognizant of all the concerns that policymakers have.
0: So in my mind, you can't separate out the policy from the machine learning. So who are the tribes involved in, in this uh field at the moment. So there's the C S people or stats people also in the mix?
2: Yeah, maybe to a lesser extent though, but there are definitely a few statisticians who are involved. And then the law community is starting to become increasingly involved. Some social ec- scientists social scientists, uh economists are yeah. are becoming increasingly involved. Yeah. I mean That's, it is I think the reality is a lot of computer scientists have really jumped into this area. Um, but there is wide participation uh, outside of computer science as well.
0: So uh, the two of you uh, were are part of this great overview survey paper that I am going to link to in the blog post accompanying so this episode called A Critical Review of Fair Machine Learning. So I think what you uh, folks did was to basically go through the uh, what has become the standard measures of fairness and then basically uh, explain why each one of those standard measures has limitations. So Let's go through it systematically. The first one is anti-classification. I guess let's start out by having you guys define what you mean by anti-classification.
1: Yeah, so this is sort of the the broad idea that algorithms shouldn't use protected characteristics when they make their decisions. Sort of uh, everyone's first thoughts when they think about fairness is like, well, we don't want to include protected characteristics in the machine learning model. So
0: for example, that would mean, Sam, uh, in admissions policies, exclude uh gender all right yes and so i think that's kind of on the
1: surface makes a lot of sense right yeah that yeah as i say that's um often the first thing that people uh, think of in fairness
0: and then so what what's wrong with just
1: uh uh, doing that well uh in a lot of contexts there are reasons why you'd want to take predictive characteristics into account so in the paper we talk about the case of Men and women in recidivism prediction. So you're trying to predict who's going to um, reoffend before their court date. And it turns out that if you take a a man and a woman with the same criminal history, the same age, they have the same sort of other risk factors, the man is more likely to reoffend than the woman. And if we don't take gender into account, uh, then we end up unfairly uh, penalizing women by treating them as if they were men, uh, even though they're much less likely to reoffend. The problem is that
2: that if you do this,
1: you're going to overestimate
2: a woman's chance of reoffending i see and so in that sense it's you, you can think of it as being biased against women so this is this counterintuitive result that not including something like gender in your model can lead to bias against the group that you're presumably trying to protect
0: yeah so there's a group of people who have taken this a step further and in, in the in the sense that uh, they also try to root out proxy variables and uh, uh, would you would you also consider the notion of uh, unwarranted associations part of this uh, general pocket of anti-classification?
1: Yeah, so the thought process sort of goes that, well, first of all, we shouldn't use protected characteristics, but then there's a lot of ways that protected characteristics are encoded in other variables. So in a segregated society like the United States, zip code often is very informative about someone's race. And so um, authors have Propose different definitions of proxy variables like zip code that should also be excluded or somehow um, moderated in the in the model because we're arguing that actually you should in certain cases include protected variables themselves. It kind of makes the questions of proxies uh, moot. If we know the defendant's race, for example, or the the applicant's race in a college admissions s- scenario, we don't need to know their zip code as a proxy for rice, because rice is already there. All
0: right, so then the next the next set of statistical measures you call classification parity. So how would you define that? So classification parity is a pretty broad set of measures.
2: It The way that we think of it is that it includes anything that can be any kind of standard error measure. Uh, so this includes false positive rates, false negative rates, precision, recall, all these things that you can compute from a contingency table. Um, and we also include in it, measure of the proportion of decisions that you make that are positive. So it's this very, very broad class of, of measures that are quite popular in the computer science world.
1: Yeah, so sometimes these are called uh, demographic parity is, is one yes, definition.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then
1: basically anything in the
0: confusion matrix.
1: Right, yeah. E- um, equalized odds, equal opportunity is in other terms for e- equalizing false positive, false negative rates. So there's a large class of definitions that we're including in classification parity.
0: So the objective here that people set out to do is let's take two groups in the population and make sure they have the same whatever metric. Yeah, exactly. So for example, you want you know, you're looking
2: at recidivism predictions and by this metric you would want to say something like white and black defendants have the same false positive rate. And what that means is among defendants who do not go on to reoffend, that the proportion of white defendants and the proportion of black defendants that are rated high risk is the
0: same. So I guess for me, my immediate reaction, if I were listening to this and not, uh, and I don't know anything about this topic, is, uh, but isn't this the very definition of fairness? You have kind of uh, these uh, standards, ML or statistical metrics, and you want different groups to have the same outcome.
1: Right. So yeah, again, it's a very intuitive concept. What um, the problem with it is that it fails to take into account how different groups might have different dist- distributions of risk. In particular, if there's people who are very low risk or very high risk, then it can throw off these measures in a way that doesn't actually change what the fair decision should be. Uh, And the upshot is that if you end up enforcing or or trying to enforce one of these measures, if you try to equalize false positive rates or you try to equalize um, some other other classification parity metric, you can end up hurting both the group you're trying to protect and any other groups uh, that you might be changing the policy for.
0: Oh, okay, so let's make this concrete. So I have two groups. What I'm trying to do is model uh, credit default. So then, how how does this work?
1: Uh, I mean, how, how why is this bad? Right. So in credit default, we might be interested in say equalizing the false negative rate, which is that of the people who are who would have paid back their loan, equal fractions of men and women say get accepted. And the problem there is that one problem, for example, is that the lender could seek out people with poor credit from one of these groups and entice them to to apply. And then what what's gonna happen there is some fraction of those uh, people with poor credit would have actually paid back their loan, but none of them will get loans because they have a bad credit history um, under any normal policy. And so what, what you're gonna do is gonna be able to manipulate that false negative rate any way you like. So a malicious lender can actually uh, get any result they like without actually having to lend any differently than they would have lended otherwise. And that's just one, example, one reason why Equalizing these measures is not the outcome we want. Got it. So then
0: uh, is one of the limitations for this particular set of uh, metrics to, for classification parity is that not one metric will give you exactly what you want. So if you're, in other words, if you're trying to achieve uh, equality for false positive rates, maybe that's not enough. But maybe if
1: you supplement it with some other metrics. Anytime you try to achieve achieve any of these, even if you supplement it with other metrics, what, what we're actually trying to do is make groups better off, make everyone as well off as we can. And there's no selection of of classification parity metrics that you can combine to make people better off. Another example is in the recidivism prediction uh, case, if we equalize false positive rates, we end up applying a higher threshold to some groups and a lower threshold to other groups. And what that means is that we're actually permitting more crime to happen in certain neighborhoods, then we would under the optimal policy. So that group is going to be harmed by this by this decision to equalize false positive rates. Interesting. Another I think, way to think about
2: this, which is what Sam was alluding to, is that one way of thinking about fairness is not in terms of false positive rates and false negative rates, but in terms of your threshold for making some sort of decision. So in recidivism, we might say that when we're deciding, when when a judge is de- deciding whether or not to detain an individual, they might say, well, let's look at someone's risk, and if they have above a 50% chance of committing an assault, if they're released, well, maybe that means we need to take some measure to prevent it. And in the lending case, maybe it's the same thing. We say, well, okay, let's look at everybody's chance of of, uh, defaulting, and everyone who has less than a 10% chance of defaulting, well, let's give them the loan. Now, I think that's, that's a threshold rule, and I think a lot of people would think that that's fair intuitively. The counterintuitive result is that acting under that type of threshold policy will almost always guarantee that these aggregate measures of error, like false positive rates and false negative rates, are violated. So that's one sense in which the usual notion of fairness is at odds with these uh, attempts to formalize fairness. I see.
1: And such a threshold policy has very nice property that uh, if you correctly decide on a trade-off between sort of the number of assaults we're willing to tolerate and the number of detentions we're willing to tolerate or something like that then a threshold policy is the optimal policy for a community I see and
0: in fact what is what uh, policymakers and practitioners are doing right now okay so let we can we can go back to classification parity in a second but the, let's go through the last one which is calibration so what is a, a layman's? Definition of calibration without using conditional distributions.
1: <laughs> so a layman's definition would be that if an algorithm gives a risk score, so maybe it gives a score from 1 to 10, and 1 is very low risk and 10 is very high risk, calibration says that the scores should mean the same thing for different groups. So if you take female defendant with a score of a 7 and a male defendant with a score of a 7, it should be about equally likely to reoffend.
0: And so again, uh, uh, just based on... Uh, the word fairness,
1: that seems fair. Right. And we uh, we basically say in our paper that calibration is necessary for fairness, but it's not good enough. Uh, just because your, your scores are calibrated doesn't mean that you aren't doing something uh, funny that could be harming certain groups. But
0: also, I, the way you define uh, calibration there, that means if I establish a threshold policy, it means the same for all the groups, right?
1: That's right. If you establish a threshold policy on a calibrated score. Yeah.
0: So what would be a, a very easy to understand example of where calibration
1: is insufficient?
0: So
2: redlining is the example that we give in the paper. And I think this is a, a nice one to consider that let's say that you're a lender and you're trying to decide who to lend to. One way to do it is you look at all the, all the information you have about the individual, their credit history, previous loans, outstanding debt, and you make a risk estimate based on those uh those characteristics so this is going to be a calibrated score if you do it properly an alternative way to do it is you only look at a handful of features maybe you just look at zip code and when you do this this is a coarsened estimate and again this is al- also often going to be calibrated but the problem is that now if you go to a relatively high-risk neighborhood you're marking everybody in that neighborhood is being high risk when in fact there are probably some people who are high risk and some people who are completely credit worthy so you've now potentially excluded from giving loans out. And this is very closely related to the historical practice of redlining, where banks would intentionally draw these maps and rule out entire neighborhoods and justify it by saying that, oh, this is a high-risk neighborhood, when, in fact, there are many credit-worthy individuals in that neighborhood. So again, it's calibration, but it masks what the what I would call is a fair policy in that circumstance.
0: My immediate reaction when I came across your guys' paper is, this is great, but then also, man, this uh, this is discouraging in some ways. So, uh, what practical advice would you give uh, data scientists who are building algorithms? So, obviously, they read the same papers that you do, and in many of the, those papers, these precisely these three category
1: of statistical metrics are extolled. Yeah. So, I think the the high level point that we want to communicate is that uh, data scientists practitioners should be really worried about people's well being, and they should really uh, Ask themselves how the the algorithms that they're designing are going to affect people's well-being, and that's the sort of high-level point uh, in terms of different fairness challenges. There are lots of other fairness challenges that are re- that are real challenges that deserve a lot of attention from data scientists, from domain experts, uh, and we'd also like to shift the conversation towards those challenges.
0: And so, but basically, uh, one of the things that I took out of this is that you need domain experts, right? So there's no. There's no silver bullet. This one test will apply to all my algorithms. Yeah, there's no famous yeah. metric.
2: There's no yeah. There's no black box that you can stick your algorithm into, and it just gives you the thumbs up or thumbs down.
0: Right, right. So it always will depend on uh, the domain and the context, and, uh, and 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 man, in in some applications, maybe some of these metrics are sufficient, right?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's actually tricky to find applications where you would really want to defer to any of these metrics to decide whether or not your algorithm is fair. And the main issue is that we often don't know what distributions look like uh, without some sort of side information. And what these metrics are based on is the assumption that these distributions look kind of the same. And so in the recidivism example, these metrics at least implicitly are assuming something like, well, the overall distribution of risk is similar among different groups. And it's whenever that assumption is violated, all
0: of a sudden these metrics can give you very funny conclusions. So, there's no, so is there um, a standard set of audits that you might want to run through, not because you want to give a thumbs up, but just basically if it doesn't even pass this set of audits, then uh, there's no point uh, going further.
1: Yeah, I think that's a more productive uh, direction the, one of the biggest ones we talk about in the paper is the presence of measurement error. So you're always trying to predict some outcome, right? whether it's recidivism, whether it's repayment of a loan. Uh, and it's extremely important that what, you, what you're what you measuring in your data set is what you're trying to predict. So the classic um, example is that in recidivism prediction, you're not actually predicting who's committed another crime. You're predicting who's been caught committing another crime, whether they've been arrested or charged or convicted. Uh, there's still going to be lots of crime happening that you're not measuring. And therefore, that's where a bias can be introduced. And that's a really hard question because it's the question of how much crime is there actually out there? Uh, And that's a, a question that criminologists have been struggling with for a long time. And so one
2: audit, one way to operationalize this is if you have a set of reasonable measures to be your label, you can see how much your algorithm changes if you use different measures. And if your algorithm is changing a lot using these different measures, then you really have to worry about, well, what is the right measure? What is the right thing to predict? And if it's a case that, you know, under a variety of reasonable measures, everything looks kind of stable, maybe it's less of an issue. But this is hard. This is very hard to carry out in practice. But I do think it's one of the most important things to understand and to be aware of when designing these types of algorithms.
0: So we started out uh, this podcast by observing that interest in fairness has exploded. So what has been the reception to your survey paper?
1: It's been. It's only been out there for a couple of weeks, We sent it to some to some researchers we know, and they were interested and provided some some great feedback, uh, but we're still uh, getting feedback at the moment.
0: Yeah, because uh, actually, uh, uh, people are starting to come out with prescriptions and processes for testing for fairness, right? So it seems to me that they should actually read your paper first.
2: <laughs> well, we we certainly don't want to suggest that we have all the answers, but we, we we do think that it's a productive conversation to have. And there are a lot of subtleties to these different types of metrics that are important to be aware of when designing these algorithms in an equitable way.
0: My takeaway is that I don't think we should start thinking that the, the problem is solved, right? So that we're very early on. And what you folks have pointed out is that we might be able to build tools and processes to flag the ones that are obviously unfair, but there's no tests or process yet to uncover unfairness in every algorithm in every context. Which is actually, to be fair, we're talking about ethics, so there's no checklist for ethics, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they're better, you know, they're, they're things that you can think about in
2: better ways and worse ways to, to go about designing these algorithms, but it's fundamentally it's a hard problem. So it's not particularly surprising that, that we don't have an algorithm to help us make
0: all of these algorithms fair. Let me ask the question in a different way to, to you do in a more practical way, which is, uh, given what you know now, how would you organize a team that's building an algorithm that you want to be fair. So the reason I ask is uh, some people are starting to advocate this notion of uh, you have a team of data scientists who builds the model and a completely independent team of data scientists that audits the model had nothing to do with the model building.
1: That seems like a reasonable approach. Again, what what is most important, I think, is that we really in- interrogate uh, the data. So another type of bias we talk about in the paper is sample bias. So often people, for pr- pretty reasonable reasons, just use whatever data they happen to have on hand. And there's no guarantee that that's going to be representative of the people who you'll be applying the system to in the future. And so I, these external audits could, could look at questions like that. It, have they? Has this model been trained on a population that's representative of who we expect to be using this tool in the future?
2: And the other thing to keep in mind here is that it really is about policy. And so saying the data scientist is going to create a fair algorithm is not really reasonable because they can create something, but how do you know what is it that you want to create? What is it that the community is going to be receptive to? That's a much, much bigger question that is fundamentally not algorithmic. So I actually view the role of data scientists in this entire process as being relatively limited compared to the much broader question of what is it that we want to accomplish?
0: Yeah, I think uh, along the same lines, uh, at least people are starting to raise the possibility of uh, you know the legal and compliance teams to- uh, talking with the data scientists much, much earlier in the process, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely essential. We've talked about uh, data scientists uh, and, and the fact that this field is moving fast for them. But what about business decision makers and uh, the non-technical people, right? So how do they process all of the developments in this field of of fairness in algorithms.
2: You know, it's particularly tricky because there's not a unified message coming out of the data science world, and so understandably, there's not you know, a lot of a sort of consensus on the non-technical side as well. And so I would like to see much more interaction, much more collaboration, and hopefully we can we can get to a message uh, together.
0: We might need to start running tutorials for the decision makers, right? Oh yeah, I think that's that's essential. So that they can, because they could, ver- they could well be faced with, you know, two competing opinions from different data scientists. I think it's right,
2: and also, I mean, you know, just to clarify, I don't think it's the tutorials for the decision makers. I think often the decision makers can be giving tutorials to the data scientists, and so it's certainly not the case that the technical parts of the community have the answers, and now it's just conveying that message. I think often the the, the technical data scientists don't know exactly what the objectives are. And so interacting more with policymakers can help clarify what it even means to be equitable.
0: By the way, I think Sam alluded to this earlier, but uh, one of the papers that I liked recently was the one from Moritz Hart and his students, something like a delayed impact of fairness, which basically they talk about, well, you can optimize this one metric. It could appear fair, but you know over time, there's implications and that same fairness metric may prove unfair.
1: Yeah, it was a nice paper. I think it had like a really intuitive headline result, which is that if you equalize false positive rates, for example, in a lending context, it means you're applying two different lending standards. And unsurprisingly, that's going to cause more defaults for for the minority group. And that's going to harm their credit scores down the line and have all the sorts of bad effects. Um, And this is sort of why we advocate. Looking at, at people's well-being, right? Because if policy that was designed with people's well-being in mind wouldn't induce a huge decrease in minority credit scores, for example.
0: So, uh, Sharad, since you're uh, an assistant professor at Stanford, so are are you folks in Stanford starting to offer classes on these topics? Yeah, um, I already teach a class that that at least partially covers
2: this. It's called Law, Order, and Algorithms. Yeah, and. As the title suggests, we look at a lot of issues that are at the intersection of criminal justice and algorithms. So this is part of it. We also look at just statistical tests for discrimination. And the part of the class that I particularly like is that it's really trying to come at it from both sides at the same time. So both from the the social science policy, legal angle, and then also from the algorithmic side. Because I think this is the way to address a lot of these issues. And it's it's not that one community has the answers, but really not that many people at all know what's going on, including myself. And I think the only way that we can move forward is, is having these types of interdisciplinary discussions. Who's taking this class? So it's a, it's a pretty diverse group of students all across campus, a lot students, engineers, computer scientists, uh, stats, PhDs, journalists. So it's a pretty diverse mix of
0: people. Excellent. So since I have both of you here, and having scoured your respective websites, I know that you are int- you are both interested in topics that are quite uh, important these days, particularly with the midterm elections coming up. So particularly polls, voter fraud, and filter bubbles. So these are all big topics, but what are the most cutting-edge things that you've heard that people should uh, know about each of these things?
2: On the voter fraud side, I think there is widespread misunderstanding that this is a real thing that happens. That there is voter fraud, and I would hopefully like to help dispel that that myth. We did a pretty extensive study, at least a one particular type of voter fraud called double voting, and we found evidence that this is extremely rare. And one of the problems is that these measures, like voter ID laws and other types of measures that ostensibly are designed to ensure the integrity of the of the vote count when there's not really that much of a problem underneath, really what that does is it, is it promotes disenfranchisement. And so there's a real cost to having these policies that in theory are great. You know, It's great to make it hard to commit fraud. The problem is when you make it hard to commit fraud, you also make it hard to legitimately vote. And what we're finding is that there's not that much of an issue, again, with the fraud side of it. And so that implies that these voter integrity style laws have this negative effect of just making it hard to vote.
0: And in many ways, I think that's uh, at least for, based on my superficial reading, I think those uh, that's the objective of those uh, laws in some ways.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it has you know it has a pretty sordid history of, of disenfranchisement associated with these types of, of laws.
0: What about Sam, what about polls? Should we st- trust polls in light of the fact that millennials don't answer their phone? <laughs> so, yeah.
1: That, some of my research... Uh, during the 2016 election was looking at polling techniques for mobile phones for apps where you don't get a representative sample and and what big reason for that is that millennials don't answer their phones uh, and so we were looking at at more sophisticated statistical techniques for getting a good estimate of public opinion when you don't have representative surveys. I think that's the direction more and more polls will have to go. Uh, But it also taught me that polling is just extremely hard. There's so many assumptions that go into it about who's going to turn out. And and I don't envy the people uh, having to to put the polls out this this fall.
0: So what types of polls do you think are the most reliable? Are they the ones at the congressional district level? Or are they the ones that uh, talk about the generic ballot? You know? I honestly wouldn't know. So you talked
1: about new techniques. So how are they getting to reach people? The software we used was an in-app software where in lieu of ads, app makers could monetize their app by offering surveys to their users. And those some of those surveys would show our polls and that's how we got the data. So it used to be the case that people
2: think random digit dialing of a landline was the best you could do. And now, as you pointed out, Many people don't answer their phones, um, and so you need to be creative about ways to reach them. And then online polls are much more popular now than they were just a few years ago, and this creates this makes it much more much more feasible to reach large segments of the electorate. And then the problem is it's not a representative segment of the electorate, and so we have to develop these statistical methods to correct for that. So you get greater reach, but now it's not representative, so you have to adjust for it. So this is the the inherent trade off in these new
0: methods. What about filter bubbles? Any, any any good news in that area?
1: <laughs> any in good, a while.
0: Yeah, any, any good news? Well, a little bit of bad
2: news is that we're finding that online uh, polarization seems to be increasing. Maybe the good news, and I don't know if this is good news or bad news, but we, we did look at the, at, at the recent election. It looks like people who tend to visit these partisan sites, they are not necessarily changing their opinions and it might be because people are already so polarized there's nowhere left to go or it might be that you know the the, the sites themselves don't actually change that anyone's opinions that much they just that, that's just where you happen to go that's where all your friends go but the content of the site is maybe not affecting people that much it's it's hard for us to tell but what we do see is that there is this kind of larger segregation online we don't know the effects of it yet but at least for the 2016 election it didn't seem to have dramatic effects on people's opinions possibly because it was one of the most polarizing elections that we've had and so at least by the time that we were starting to observe people it's quite feasible there's nowhere left to go
0: this is a, a, this has been a great conversation so it sounds like Sharad uh, uh, you interact a lot with social scientists these days. So are you seeing them starting to use machine learning? Yeah, I mean, I even I think of myself as a social scientist. And I I do think a
2: lot of people are picking up machine learning methods in political science, in uh, economics, in um, the business school, even in law. Now there's there's a little bit of this certainly with this algorithmic fairness. So it's huge interest. And my sense is that, especially with this, this next generation of graduate students, they're, this is just part of their, the, the way that they're, they're trained. It's like coding. It's uh, now many of the undergraduates on campus, they, they know how to code regardless of what major they're pursuing. And many of them will continue on and, and pursue a, a PhD in the social science and they'll just know how to do these methods. I sometimes
0: find that stats is somewhat appreci- underappreciated because I as I read your paper, right? So a lot of a lot of the reasoning is uh, statistical in nature, right? So I think sometimes people just blindly apply these algorithms without actually knowing how they
1: work. I certainly under underappreciated statistics before I before I came to Stanford.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of flip side: is that it's incredibly easy now to apply these you know, pretty complicated black box machine learning methods, which is great when you're trying to solve these hard problems. But the flip side is that it's also incredibly easy to apply these methods that a lot of people don't understand how they work. And this can lead to sort of funny, funny results or not being able to diagnose problems with the models or not knowing when it's appropriate to apply one model versus another model.
0: You know, the one thing, too, that I always remind myself is as much as we talk about machine learning, we're still in the early phases. And so we're going to see a lot more of these models deployed out in the wild. A lot of these algorithms and black boxes deployed out in the wild. So in many ways, it's heartening that people like you are already engaging in talking about fairness this early on because... uh, Even though, as we discussed, there's no silver bullet, I think as there are many more models out there in the wild in production, the people who are responsible for these models will need tools to help them wade through those many models. And fairness will be one of those things they will have to grapple with at scale, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly
2: right. I think that's what a lot of this recent interest is in, that there's this realization that algorithms machine learning methods are being used in all walks of life and we have to make sure that they're that they're equitable that they're doing what we want them to do and in some ways we are early on and so that's it's great that there is all this interest in another sense We've yes. already lived in this world for a long time in the presence of these algorithms. And in that sense, it's surprising that it's taken this long before we even realized that this is something that we that we have to consider. So, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that more will come of this, but it's also in some way sobering that it took us this long to realize that these issues are so important. That's
0: true. And uh, I think actually uh, this area is one area where at least for the foreseeable future, you will need a human in the loop. Right. Uh, I don't think an AI can monitor AI for now. <laughs>
1: well, especially because we don't have any, as we've talked about, there's no metric that right, tells exactly. you whether if you're there or not. So it seems pretty challenging.
0: Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you, uh, Sharad and Sam. Thank you. very Thank much. much. Thank you. You can follow Sharad and Sam on Twitter at 5harad and at S. Corbett Davies. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.